Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Today, I chat with Jessica Traunstein and Amar Wiseau, who are these two amazing political science professors who are thinking about housing and uh, how we can make housing better for society and how we can build more of it and the history of racial segregation housing they both intersect at the they both work at the intersection of law and um race and housing and so it's just a really good conversation where you can see them vibing on um you know kind of the history of like the history of redlining and what have you in america through to today to the building of these coalitions like yimby um and then thinking about how those coalitions might be uh changing in the future and how we can kind of use those to build kind of bundles of housing um that bring coalitions together to actually like build more housing so i think it's a great it's full of a lot of like key easy like word nuggets about um you know uh, middle housing the missing middle housing and super commuters and you know the land that elevators forgot and a bunch of stuff like that and so um check it out if you want to learn more about it thanks hello reese's pieces i'm reese the co-founder of root and welcome to the reese show the century is a turning point in human history and i'm here to help you navigate it i hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific technological and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world and we can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And today, I'm excited to chat with two poli-sci professors about housing, Jessica Traunstein and Omar Wasau. Uh, Jessica is a professor of political science at UC Merced, who wrote the amazing book, Segregation by Design. And Omar is a, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at UC Berkeley, who uses stats to understand race and society. Jessica and Omar, thanks for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Excited to dive in. Um, so the goal is for listeners to kind of understand the history of housing, law, and race through time. And, um, you know, we'll kind of do past, present, and future. And starting with the past, I mean, Jessica has this amazing book uh, on segregation by design, which is looking at especially the 20th century and how these laws, um, the segregation, why did segregation emerge? Well, it's not only just people moving around, but it's actually a lot of these laws, like single-family housing, that created segregation and that leads then to negative outcomes around public goods like sewage lines and kind of uh, education, things like that. And I actually want to double click on a specific part of that, Jessica, which is white flight and the idea that uh, in a city, if you actually have more policies that look more kind of democratic or whatever, um, things like desegregation or things like that, then it actually leads to more segregation and more white flight. And so, Jessica, could you tell us more about that finding and what that tells us about how laws kind of lead to segregation? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the, the process that you're talking about is sort of a mid 20th century process of suburbanization and suburbanization in the United States happens for lots of different reasons. Um, there are housing market reasons, there are transportation reasons, and there are real estate market reasons, right? It's much cheaper to buy a new house out in the suburbs in order to get the kind of space that a lot of families want. And in the middle of the 20th century, there was a huge marketing campaign um, among real estate agents, among financiers, and um, among uh, people invested in the real estate market to convince people that they needed space, that they needed a single family home. And we see this enormous boom um, in the suburbs, uh, this enormous building boom that really you know, we had suburbs in the 1910s and the 1920s, but they were tiny. Really, people mostly didn't live in, in the suburbs. You either lived on a farm 
or you lived in the city. So suburbs kind of emerge all at once in this post-World War II period. And at the same time that we have this enormous building boom and this you know, massive increase in suburbanization and the, the, the possibility of living in the suburbs, we have a set of policies on the books that prevent people of color and lower income people from accessing those homes in the suburbs. And, and that's not a history that I've written. That, that's a history that lots and lots of other people have written, um, sociologists and historians. So we, we sort of already knew that. We knew that suburbs were inaccessible to people of color. And, but what, what my book tries to do is to tie all these pieces together, right? So what's happening in the cities? And you mentioned sort of these progressive policies and things that are changing in the city. So as we see more Black mayors running for office, as we see more Black mayors getting elected, as we see changes in the, in the budgets um, of cities, we see, or I see, um, an increase in the the. The, the, the proportion of people who are leaving to the suburbs, so, so an increase in what you've termed white flight. And the reason why this is white flight is because the suburbs are not available to people who are not white. And so we see these patterns um, sort of in reinforcing each other. And one of the pieces that I try to emphasize um, at this moment in history is that we move from a society that is segregated block by block or neighborhood by neighborhood. And you can think of lots of cities that look like this, right? Just across the street or just across the tracks is an all black neighborhood or an all white neighborhood. We move from that kind of segregation to the kind of segregation that we see today, which is whole cities that are predominantly people of color, whole cities that are predominantly white. This sort of city to city segregation becomes the pattern of our geography starting in the 1970s. And it really takes off in the 1980s and becomes sticky. And we see only an increase in that kind of segregation over uh, the, la- the, the, the next 20, 30 years. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great overview of like, we both have this uh, transition from intra uh, city to inter city um, kind of segregation. And then also the kind of, yeah, as you're saying, there's like, it's funny to think about, I, you know, I'm 31. And so it's like a world without suburbs. What what do you mean? You know? Um, And so it's interesting. It's a a whole like the obviously post-World War II American dream thing. It actually, and before we go to Omar, I want to ask you another question here, Jessica. What if you were to um, try to associate an amount of causality because you could call it white flight or rich flight. You could call it segregation or kind of, you call it race-based segregation or like so, like economic-based segregation. If you were to like try to like dis, like say, okay, 50% of the um, uh, causality is on racial lines versus 50% on income lines. Like what of the, especially the laws that got created that made the segregation emerge, what percent was income versus what percent was um, race? You're asking for this angling that is not possible because during this time period, race and wealth are completely and totally interlinked. And the idea that you could zone or create legislation that would prevent people from the lower end of the income distribution from accessing your your neighborhood was completely and totally synonymous with preventing people of color from accessing your neighborhood. And so, you know, I, we can't disentangle them. The purpose of each of these laws, you know, the, politics is all about people with different 
ends or different, you know, different, different, slightly different reasons for coming together to actually come together. And so we have, we see some people who are very interested in preventing renters from coming to their community. We see others who are very interested in preventing Chinese residents from coming to their community. Others who are interested in preventing Black residents from coming to their community. But what do they share? They all share an interest in a legal structure that prevents both low income and and uh, people of color from accessing their their community. Yeah, I love that. That's a great. It's kind of like, and and you can think about it as the. And this is kind of like the sneaky things that were done, where it's like, oh, we're just doing it for single family. We only allow single family homes. We're not saying no to black people because that would be racist because we're in the, uh, you know, post. But it's like actually that has the same implication, which is it creates a white neighborhood. Yeah, um, I mean that language that you're using is now is that's very modern. So in the yeah. 1950s, people would have been absolutely fine with saying, I am pre- I am passing this law in order to prevent black people from moving to my neighborhood. That uh-huh. would have been a perfectly socially acceptable thing to say. Yeah, got there's it. A, there's a, I'm going to jump in here. Yes, there's yes. A, in some of the earliest single family zoning laws were in Berkeley and the person who was, uh, it was sort of interestingly, somebody who was the head of the Sierra Club at the time. And he was also aligned uh, with the, the realty interests. And he has a quote, just echoing what Jessica just said, which goes roughly, you know, this single family zoning law that we're enacting uh, will keep out Negroes and Asiatics from these neighborhoods. Right. So that's around 1916. And so I think it, it is um, in the in the early days very explicitly about uh, a kind of race neutral set of laws that have disparate effects uh, across uh, lines of race. Um, and then uh, just I'm going to keep riffing for a second. You know, I think I think it's also important to appreciate in the story that Jessica just told about the kind of the post-war boom is that in a kind of pre-World War II era, before lots of people have cars, people aren't in a position, you know, people need to be able to like walk to work or take a train to work. And so there's just a, the, the technological demand is that you need to have density in order to have a, a kind of, you know, to get people close to employment. Um, and as you see the, the, the particularly, um, uh, kind of in a post-war era, a boom in, in automobiles, suddenly there's this uh, kind of centrifugal force that allows people to live further from work. And, and, and just to echo another point Jessica made, you, you have kind of two forces, one technological and one sociological. There's the civil rights movement, which is putting increasing pressure on society to do things like enact fair housing laws and to fight um, the kinds of explicit um, uh, discrimination that, that, that exists. And, and, and that, uh, leads to growing use of these policies. Sometimes, uh, you know, again, you mentioned single family zoning, but it's other things like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in, uh, outside of, uh, LA in a neighborhood called Claremont. There are laws that you can't park your car overnight. Uh, on the street. Like, what is that about? That means everybody, you, you know, you can't have uh, a home that has, they say, four people or four, four people with different cars, right? So there are all these subtle ways in which they're basically discriminating on the basis, as Jessica said, on class and race as a way to maintain a certain kind of, quote, neighborhood character. Um, and that's, and those, those, the growth of those, that, that kind of thicket of laws goes very much in parallel with rising pressure to try and enact policies like fair housing laws. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think you, another point, and Omar is referring to this, that you, you, you know, you have to remember here. So you might ask, well, wh why didn't they just pass laws that said we don't want black people in our neighborhood? Um, they tried that. Um, they tried to create, you know, so cities tried to enact racial zoning in the early 1900s. And it was the Supreme Court that ruled that unconstitutional, not to protect African-American interests, but to protect white interests, to allow white interests to sell their homes to whoever they wanted to sell their homes to. And so the, the prohibition against uh, racially explicit housing law comes from a, a history of Supreme Court cases, not from the impetus or the desire of the segregators themselves. Got it. And, and, and one other thing, I had the privilege of uh, attending a, a, a talk um, when Jessica was uh, doing the kind of the final draft of her book. And one of the comments that somebody made at that talk that just lingered with me ever since was, you, you we sort of, you know, you, you mentioned like a world without suburbs. How could that be, right? Like, like we're so used to residential segregation in America, really stark residential segregation, that it can be hard to imagine like what the, the, the alternative, the counterfactual universe might be. And what Jessica is alluding to there, which I think is really important to appreciate, is that even if there's a predominantly white area and a predominantly black area, there's often a border district where somebody at the margin has an interest in selling. You know, my my black grandmother integrated a neighborhood, a white neighborhood in Seattle, right? Somebody, somebody white sold her a home. And 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 that kind of transaction speaks to how actually you know, in this sort of, in a relatively fluid open market, you actually have these porous borders and neighborhoods getting mixed and people moving. And, and, and the whole point of these kind of legislating segregation, right? Segregation by design, as, as, as Jessica's book calls it, is that you can't allow a market and freedom of choice to work. You've got to impose regulations that restrict people's freedom to do what they want, um, and of course, I'm not saying there isn't lots of uh, market-based discrimination, but 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 the, the laws are required to prevent even the kinds of um, organic integration that was happening, and that's that's really a lot of the work that's being done is to 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 preempt even the possibility of mixed neighborhoods. Yeah, well, this is great, and this, by the way, this is you two just having a conversation is also the goal, you know. So you guys are doing it right, you know. So it's, you know, <laughs> I think I just sort of, um, you know, synthesize a couple of those things. A, you know, coming back off the stack there, I think that like the idea that you have um, the counterfactual realities are really hard. And that's why, like, when anybody like travels to Europe and like feels a little bit of density, <laughs> it's like, oh my god, this is what a city could be like. It's like I think that's really helpful. Um, and I wonder what the version of that is for segregation. Um, it also makes me think of I loved the term. Um, and I forget which which I which of you use it, but like the thicket of laws versus the kind of and, and, and I think Jessica, you make this great point in your book about the there's a thick like density is a form of diversity. If you allow for density, then you, that allows for more diversity. And so if you kind of slow the density, then you slow the diversity. And so what people do is they they made a thicket of laws so that they didn't get a density of laws instead of a density of people. You know, it's kind of you can create the legal frameworks to like make friction so that people can't come in. Um, and then the other thing I was going to say was. Um, yeah, I guess. And I guess actually I want to double click on this one thing, too, which is back to this white flight idea, which is um, this like the kind of the the instinct of, of people to um, to kind of desegregate that then leads to more segregation. I just want to kind of um, loop in some of Omar's work around the um, uh, agenda seating, which is this idea that 
if you have a and this was kind of uh, hip or was controversial at least during the um, Black Lives Matter protests, um, which is that if you have in, in nonviolent protest, that actually leads to more democratic votes. Where you're like, okay, they're being nonviolent, blah blah. But if you have a if that leads a little bit more into more violent, or what people perceive as violent, when the movement becomes a mob, when it becomes a riot, whatever you want to call it, then it actually leads to kind of a backlash. And so it reminds me of kind of the kind of white flight thing. So Omar, tell us more about that learning and and what it leads to like backlash style thinking. What we can learn from it. Sure. Um, well, let me let me sort of work, let me let me. I'll just quickly say right. So I, I did this research on protests in the 1960s and find that the kinds of tactics protesters use really matter for their ability to kind of build winning coalitions. And um, and I think one way in which that work kind of translates a bit to what we see in um, in kind of housing policy is that there's been four decades now. A, a kind of home voter block that is exceedingly powerful. Um, and, and just to give a sense, right, I mean, you, you referenced European cities. Um, and we can, you know, my, 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 my father uh, has a, a, a crude hypothesis that I, I think is now widely accepted. I mean, not, 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 the, not on the basis of anything he's done, but it's sort of commonly understood that, right, it's like basically if a city boomed after cars became common, it spread out. But if cities boomed before the invention of the car, they're quite dense, right? So, so why is New York or San Francisco or much of Europe much denser? Those are, those are cars that, you know, where the dominant transportation technology was walking, right? I mean, the cities that, that, that boomed in that time. And, um, and so, so in those kinds of places, like, like you don't have a dominant home voter uh, block, and that's a kind of organic growth that, 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 that happened in, in a particular period. What we see in that post-war period that Jessica was talking about is now the typical American city is zoned for something like 75% single-family homes. I mean, it, it's just, it, it, you know, and as somebody who grew up in New York, I look around a place like Los Angeles and it just, it, it feels like this very bizarre, it, it, to my mind, it's like, it's like the land that elevators forgot. It's like, here is the second largest city in America and almost all the buildings are one and two stories tall. Right. I mean, it's just like and, and, and what you have to appreciate is like when we look at that, you, you don't see the zoning laws. You don't see the um, anti-development laws. You don't see the parking requirements. You, that's all encoded in the built environment and and has the effect of, again, making it harder to build uh, dense housing that essentially allows for working class people to compete for, you know, some parcel of land, right? So, so what does that have to do with my work? Well, if we think about like politics is in some ways about how do you build winning governing coalitions, um, part of what's been quite striking in the last half century is the degree to which what, what some political scientists have called home voters and some economists have, have really dominated, uh, you know, city politics. And, um, and what's interesting, I think, in the last maybe decade is we're seeing a movement that is building a different coalition that, that is now potentially challenging this very powerful home voter block that is, um, you know, by definition, sort of wealthier and, uh, you know, kind of around longer term. Um, and, and so, so I think I, I kind of think of this as two movements. I mean, the, the, so coming back to my work, like you've got a, um, you know, protect our neighborhood movement um, that goes back. Uh, it has in many of its roots in fighting fair housing, fighting equal access to housing, particularly fighting anti-housing segregation laws. Um, 
and but it's now kind of broader and more amorphous than that. Um, and now this 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 very interesting insurgent movement trying to say this is uh, producing you know this is this is you know the, 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 these laws you know most you know kind of visibly single family housing but all sorts of others are essentially they're laws that that are pro poverty right they increase the cost of housing so they drive uh, middle and working class people out of these neighborhoods they're um, they're bad for the environment. Um, they make people drive more. They, they, um, you know, they reduce the degree to which we can walk to the supermarket versus, uh, uh, drive. Um, and, and, and they, they have these other kinds of effects, right? They're pro segregation and, and, and they're anti growth. And so we're starting to see a new coalition emerge in part driven by activists and legislators who have been able to kind of change the narrative, um, about housing. That is an echo to me of some of the civil rights era work we saw where people were trying to change the narrative about the status quo then. Yeah, love it. I think that's a really good, um, I think that's a, that's a really excellent sort of link and, and way to think about the new coalitions and the new divisions um, that, are, that are, have emerged over the last decade and a half. But I think it's also important to recognize that, particularly in California, um, some of the most vocal and outspoken opponents to changing housing law have been communities of color that don't want to be gentrified and have seen their communities overrun again and again by the single apartment building that gets put in a in a community right or they get they end up getting the short end of the development stick and there's some really cool new research that looks at what happens when you give voice to all neighborhoods equally rather than only uh, some neighborhoods in the city and the the result is that development goes down everywhere right so what we have what we see now is that blocking happens in all kinds of neighborhoods and across the demographic spectrum and across the economic spectrum there's really interesting research showing that renters can be just as uh, nimbyish as homeowners can and so uh, but i think you're exactly right omar the what has changed since the 1970s is the story that we tell ourselves about our neighborhoods and the stories that people believe about what growth will do and what density will look like. It's interesting because in the 1960s, there was all this sociological research, sort of urban ur- urban politics research, early, early work that made the, the basic claim of the work was that the growth machine and the developers dominate everything in city government. And that way, when I became a political scientist in the early 2000s, um, that was what people believed was true. And that, that this sort of development mindset of, of cities and elected officials drove decision making at the local level. And obviously, as Omar just said, that's that's not true anymore, right? We have this very powerful anti-growth coalition, a blocking coalition that has emerged across the United States. But it is uneven. There are places in the United States where we do see a lot of development happening and a lot of developer power. What is consistent, though, are the communities of color and the and the lower income communities still don't have the voice and the ability to protect themselves in either of these environments, right? So they, they, don't, they don't get access to the wealthier neighborhoods. They don't get access to the better schools. And if development does happen, it ends up getting shoveled into their neighborhoods in a way that makes density um, untenable for their communities because the other amenities aren't built around that, right? There isn't new public transportation that's provided. There isn't, uh, you know, better, you know, better attention to rent control. So I think it, 
it's complicated how these coalitions are going to look in the future. And uh, I, I really appreciate the, the attention that you're bringing to sort of thinking about the narrative here and how that's changed. Yeah, I think, and maybe I would love to double click on that in a second, just do a little bit of synthesis for the listeners. A, um, in, in terms of thinking about, I think, Omar's perspective on these kind of um, networked coalitions, kind of, the, and there's like Erica Chinowith work here around, you know, network nonviolent protests. And so thinking about like, when you just think about politics, start to think of them in terms of these coalitions and how they kind of aggregate or, you know, and, and who's on one side, who's on the other. So like thinking in terms of like nodes and edges and like how they kind of um, battle is one good thing. I think that the, um, you know, thinking about this kind of these new kind of narratives that both of you are hitting on, I think is really important. I think, and I love Jessica that you talked about, cause there's this, you know, cause I'm essentially a Yimby maximalist, you know, <laughs> if you wanted to paint me in a corner, it's like, okay, just like a, I'm an abundant housing guy, you know? Um, but as Jessica's saying, there is very reasonable, and like my housemate is, I'm all along like Prop D, the kind of just, you know, Yimby thing, but he's he's actually um, um, going around um, picketing, not picketing, whatever, uh, for, for Prop E, you know, and so he's, and so him and I have these conversations. So I'm curious for you guys to just kind of chat about that a bit, because like, how do we square that circle? How do we make it the case that these, that gentrification doesn't happen as much or whatever it happens in a loving way while we still get like, quote unquote, max development or whatever? How do you think about that? I'm happy to have you start in on this question, Omar. I, I have sure. Um, so I would say a couple of things. So I think I think first, it's it's really important to appreciate that like we've we've converged to, for lack of better language, a kind of equilibrium or a status quo where there's this sense of uh, it's a zero sum game, and that you know any new development comes at the expense of my uh, ability to afford this neighborhood, um, and that's true. In a place like California, you know, up to the upper middle class, um, where you know housing is so expensive that you can't help but feel like um, you're in this sort of you know really uh, awful competition with other people for um, you know you, you just to have your foot in the door, right? And it's like you know how are you going to commute enough? You know, just to make it um, tangible to people who aren't in California. California has the largest number of people who are described as super commuters, people commuting three hours each way to get to a job, right? And that's non-trivially because like where people can afford housing is so far from where their work is, right? So this is just like, it dominates people's lives. And, um, and I think it's important to also say, and I'm getting a little far from your original question, but that like housing is at the center of so many issues, right? So it's not just where you live, but again, it's, 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 you know, your access to employment, it's your access to, as you and Jessica have referenced earlier, parks, schools, safety, you know, it's like, there's this whole set of this whole bundle of quality of life things that are not just about quality of life, but about, you know, the engine of opportunity for you and your family potentially, right? So, 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 so housing just matters enormously to uh, well-being and, 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 and economic possibility. Um, and, what we've got is a world now where people perceive like any progress um, for some other group is coming at my expense. And I think what's what's hard to convey, but what I think is fundamentally true is like there is we could have a lot more six story houses and that doesn't come at the expense of somebody's one story house. And that, you know, so, so let me let me make this a little more tangible, something like 20 percent of the new um, residents to L.A., live on 1% of the land, right? And that's in downtown LA. It's like, it's like, oh, like, like it actually doesn't take a lot of density to house a lot of people. And, um, and so, so the first order of thing to say is like, is like, 
we, we, we have the we have the land to house vastly more people in 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 wonderful you know walkable you know neighborhoods with parks and good schools like 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 that is so so I think so the first thing is like can we shift from this kind of scarcity idea which which to be clear is in fact how it plays out day to day to one where it's like oh there's like this 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 possibility that like everybody could be better off in in this other world right. Um, and I think that's very hard to convey in the short run, but I think it's very clear kind of longer term. So that, that, that's, I think there's a storytelling problem there. And there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a set of, you know, I, it, it, that's a complicated idea to convey, but I think it's fundamentally right. Um, let me say one other thing as part of this, which is that I also think that because there is essentially all of this unlocked value on the one story house that could be, you know, a six story apartment building. So, I, uh, a year ago, I lived in an apartment building in Glendale in California, and it was I happened to look on Google Maps at the, the property. Um, it was a relatively new one. And you could see that the, the, the Google the Google Street View was hadn't updated. Um, and you could see the McDonald's with a giant parking lot that was now housing 300 uh, apartments, three, you know, 300 families. Right. And so so it's like it's like that's what's possible is that we could have abundant housing. And it's like coming at the expense of like um, uh, there's a lot of land that's being underutilized. The key idea is like it ought to be possible to upzone in a way that rewards current homeowners. Right. There's like all of this unlock untapped value in the, you know, essentially the, the air that is not being used for housing right now. Um, and there ought to be ways to subsidize, uh, you know, in in the kind of enormous capacity and abundance that's there to offer more uh, subsidies to poor people so that they can afford housing um, and do it in a way that sort of moves us out of the, the cutthroat zero something. And one last very quick point is that I think people really miss in these kind of stories of gentrification is that much of what is affordable housing is what was luxury housing 50 years ago. And so if you actually are building lots and lots of housing and there's a steady supply of that, that means that there's this just kind of, you know, in the same way that like somebody wealthy might buy a, a new car and somebody middle class might buy a used car, like like that's a process we see in lots of other domains that hasn't been able to happen in housing in California because there's been so much restriction on supply. So that in the short run, again, that doesn't solve, you can't wait 50 years for the affordable housing, but, but to the extent that we increase supply dramatically, it does a lot to take pressure off of neighborhoods that are gentrifying and to create um, and to also potentially draw the middle class person into the new building and make that you know, older apartment building of, of, available to a working class person. So, so I think there is this world where abundance benefits everybody, but it's very hard to persuade people of that given the zero sum experience we have day to day. Beautiful. Yeah, Jessica. I want to build on Omar's um, analogy here on the car market. So um, the car market is a, is a great market, is a, is a great analogy for housing. Imagine, um, as happened during the pandemic, that new cars suddenly become impossible to buy. Impossible. What do you think the wealthiest people who would otherwise buy the fanciest fancy car out there are going to do? Well, they're going to find the fanciest fancy used car out there. Then what about the people who otherwise would have bought the used car? What are they going to buy? Well, they're going to buy a creditier used car because the price now of the of the fancy used car has just been driven up by the people who have the money to spend, would have bought the new car if they could have, and now we're going to buy the used car. So housing markets work just this same way. If you stop supply, you your wealthiest 
members of society are going to pour their resources into buying the best available housing that that exists. And that is going to be housing that otherwise could have gone to people at the lower and middle end of the income distribution if you don't build new housing. The other thing to say, and this is, you know, Omar made a lot of really great points here. There, there, there are a couple of ways to understand understand gentrification. One here is to is to understand that it, you, up until about the 1970s, the way that we got density was small. It was somebody taking a single family home and turning it into flats. Um, once you get up back up to Northern California, Omar, you'll see a lot of that in, in Berkeley, right? There's a lot of single family, Victorian single family homes that now have two stories or three stories where people live in, in one of those flats. If you anywhere in the Midwest and the East, these that kind of density is very common and it's it's, it's fundamentally illegal now in almost every city in America to, to create that kind of light touch density, that kind of middle missing middle housing because of the way that zoning laws changed. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that we stopped seeing this sort of gentle densification happening. And what happens in the 1970s? Well, we see a massive increase in the, in the changes in housing regulation at the local level. We see this coming on the tail on the heels of the fair housing laws that were passed at the national level and at the state level. So we see this big new interest in local governments trying to dig in their heels and create the regulatory structure that they were uh, now sort of in, uh, unable to prevent the federal government from, from, from changing the way that housing markets work. The other thing that happens in the 1970s is that housing changes from a, a commodity, something that you buy and expect to then sell someday, to an investment. That is something that you buy and expect to make money on. The way that we think about housing now as an investment and when homeowners buy their house, they don't just expect to get their money back. They expect to get their money back and to earn more income from that housing. That's a new thing relatively in the course of history right that that understanding housing as an investment it has it, it used to just be property developers were investors they've always thought that way right but until the 1970s single family homeowners weren't particularly attuned to this way of thinking about housing value so those changes have changed the way that we think about densification that overlaid with the fact that when we now, when we do densify, and we talked about this a little bit ago, the only option is to build a 30-story high-rise in, on some plot. That the, Building a 30-story high-rise is a really, really different process, and it, and it creates a very different kind of community impact than building a triplex or a quadplex or even a six unit development, right? And so now that we have these laws, these sticky laws in place that force us to, to only build development in these big structures means that what we think about density and what we think about densification is correct for, for, for our current moment, but it is incorrect for how we should think about the housing, you know, housing possibilities that exist. The other piece of this is that the the one consistency that I have seen from the 1890s all the way to the 2020s is that the most exclusive, the most privileged neighborhoods are the ones that are 
100% successful at preventing development in their communities. If you want to prevent gentrification with new development, you have to build in those communities. You have to spread development across communities rather than only building in transit corridors or only building in low-income communities. You must build densification in the most exclusive neighborhoods. And until we see that kind of development happening, we will continue to, to sort of struggle back and forth with this gentrification process. And as Omar said, gentrification, it, it, the supply does calm the gentrification process, but it takes a long time. And so in the meantime, what we should do is provide rent control, right? There are very obvious solutions to the problems that people bring up here, but they're, but they're not, uh, they, they have to come sort of as a package deal. Yeah, I love all that. And I just want to like, appreciate both of you for a second where it's like, you know, Jessica, whenever you're coming in and talking about something, you're always like, and don't forget, here's the thing I've seen from the 1890s through 2020. It's like for someone like me, I'm kind of like, blah, blah, blah. I heard about Yimbyism, you know, recently, but she's like, look, the history is this. And then Omar, I just want to appreciate you for always bringing in like the data. You're like, it's kind of data eyes this for people. It's 1% of, you know, within 1% of land, 20% of the population, whatever. So it's like, I think both of you kind of bring in your superpowers in those beautiful ways. And I think that the, um, just to reflect some of that, yeah, I mean, the classic, it's such a sad thing that it's, uh, and I'm uh, talking with Alan Durning from Sightline Institute, you know, housing, the goal of housing prices should be, they should be stable, you know, stable or decreasing, you know, it should be a commodity, not investment. Um, and we want, and I love the term that you just use of gentle densification in the kind of like the middle, missing middle housing, you know, gentle is such a nice, we're just like, this such a weird state where it's just like, you either have to do hyper brain control, or just like, boom, 30 story, whatever. So it's like that other reality. And this is the kind of like the ADU push will hopefully have some of that, um, baked into it um and i'd also love yeah the thing that brings it home for people the used car thing where everybody's like man used cars are so hard it's like yeah that's because of this kind of the filtering process or the the negative form of the trickle down where it's like hey this is um an issue i think the other pieces here is i you know omar like what you were saying about um the scarcity versus you know zero sum versus abundant mindset i think that the um I, well the super commuter learning about that is great and and three hours is a, such a brutal commute and then thinking about the um you know, how we think about um, the, the space above, thinking about, um, like, from a public goods perspective, you think about air as a public good. And so from a city perspective, I think it would be great to imagine the, the uh, space above it. You can kind of color it in. You can imagine what the image looks like. You're like, that is money. There's, like, money there. And that money, we don't know how to divide it between the developers and the lower-income folks and the folks that incentivize the community to build it there. That's an open question, but, like, the thinking of that as like an asset, a real asset to be used. I think I, I, I agree with that. And one final piece is there's a beautiful talking about the counterfactual here and like um, how we can imagine um, uh, you were talking Omar about the, um, uh, you know, different housing pieces and, and how they look. It's like, you can imagine what people have done is they've um, taken Dolly uh, AI generate. You guys may have seen this on Twitter and they, they were taking it and they were showing, this is what these things could communities could look like and look like this beautiful reality. So actually I want to ask you guys as we get into pseudo rap mode, maybe five ish, um, you know, five to seven more minutes. How do you all think about, um, what do you guys disagree on? <laughs> you all seem to be roughly in alignment. <laughs> do you guys have things that are top of your mind? Where like one of you is extreme on something or anything top of mind that you disagree on? So, you know, we're, we're, we're friendly, but probably not that deep in each other's work that there's like an obvious, like you wrote this and I wrote this competing claim. Um, you know, I might say, you know, I think one area where there's um, active debate in, you know, kind of econ and poli sci is around, is rent control the best way to do anti-poverty for housing, right? And that, um, you know, I grew up in New York and, and what, what happened in New York, uh, particularly around something like rent control, is that rent control tends to reward people who can live in the same place for a long time. 
And so that often tends to be the most stable families, often more middle class than working class. And so if you're a working class family and you, you know, are having difficulty keeping up with your rent payments and you move, you lose access to rent control. And um, and so it's it's tied to a you know a contract rather than to say um, a, an income level for for, for poor people um, and and it can create all sorts of perverse incentives. You get landlords are then unhappy to have a rent control tenant, and so they undersupply. You know they behave like jerks, and then you get laws to uh, attack you know to protect tenants from landlords, but then. That encourages landlords to be much more selective about who they bring in. And you, you can get this kind of arms race of laws to protect tenants and laws to um, uh, you know, try and, um, and, and, then, and then landlords sort of behaving in ways that are trying to protect themselves. That actually produces a worse equilibrium than I think if we just subsidized, you know, if you did a better job of giving essentially what we, we did during the pandemic, give poor people money and allow them to figure out what's the best solution for them. And Jessica, um, do you, what do you think about that, Jessica? Are you so in disagreement? Generally, <laughs> rent control is a very, um, uh, very contentious policy. And it's largely contentious because it's never done in a bundled way, in my view. So, you know, rent control on its own is disastrous for the reasons that Omar suggested, but it also really inhibits development. There's all these other weird side effects of if you just if you just pass rent control, it encourages people to to sort of not be interested in the supply problem. And so what you end up with then is no development and the rent control problems that then reward the sort of longest, you know, standing homeowners. And so I, I would say, you know, rent control has to be like any policy. It has to come with a, a full understanding of the ramifications and the sort of downstream consequences of anything that's going to be, you know, anything that would be enacted. And um, so without strong development pressure, without other ways of subsidizing people who need to, you know, move and find new housing, rent control does totally, completely, I completely agree with Omar. I, but I do think that there can be there can be limited ways in which rent control can be targeted to particular neighborhoods that are worried about gentrification, that are worried about new development as a way, a temporary way to sort of calm the development pressure um, as, as we're moving toward a transitional place, right? Where as, as a neighborhood is changing. So, uh, you know, policy. I, I, I agree with that fully. Yeah. And, and, I, and I would say, I mean, I think, I think, I think there's, we're, and just to affirm something that Jessica said, which I think is really important, is that, and she, this is said in two different moments, right? So one is there is there are multiple veto points on developing housing, right? One of them is wealthy home voters, but but another is working class communities that are worried about uh, displacement and loss of their own, um, you know, sort of ethnic enclaves that have long histories, and um, and I think we we we, we don't. It's not enough. I think a classic kind of pro-market position is to just say, you know, let's let abundance uh, flourish, um, and and you know, and and to take the to kind of speak to your Yimby maximalist position, like I think there's a lot to be said for that, but but what I think is so important, what Jessica said, is that there's like what what, what we what from a coalition building perspective, from an equity and justice perspective, from a um, you know kind of like how do we how do we build the governing coalition, like. There, there, there ought to be ways to essentially create positive incentives for more of these folks to buy in and to feel like their futures as individuals and as neighborhoods is going to be better. Right. Yeah. And I think I think um, 
And so I think we need more policy innovation there where it's sort of really trying to kind of reward people who buy into upzoning. Um, and, and, and that that's, um, and, and, and that, as, you know, again, right. I mean, as, as you were sort of alluding to, right. If we imagine Paris style density, right. These are just like six, seven story buildings. This is not, uh, necessarily 30 story buildings, though I grew up in a 30 story building and I'm fine with that too. Um, but, but like, like there are these marvelous neighborhoods that are latent there. And, um, and, and you know, again, it could be four stories. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm willing to haggle, but it's like, how do we, get people to get excited about that future. And at least part of that is, I think, literally like, you know, it's it, it giving people cash in ways that say, oh, if I shift from this um, scarce equilibrium to one where there's sort of lots of growth and possibility and I still belong, right, I can afford to live here, then um, you can potentially make it so that instead of it being a veto point, it's, 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 a, it's a coalition for growth. And yeah. let me give one uh, just detail on that. You know, it, Minneapolis did this uh, remarkable upzoning um, a couple of years ago, and it's still, you know, and it's, it's not it's incomplete, and you know, it may be you know, overturned and things. But but what what they were able to do was to build a coalition of people who are pro growth, right? These were business people who said, well, Minneapolis can be. Uh, you know, a city that tries to be a, a leading city in the world, or it can be a kind of second tier city in America. We want to be a leading city. Um, and uh, people, racial justice advocates who said, you know, let's look at this history of like redlining and, and, and single family zoning law as policy designed to exclude black people from these neighborhoods and environmental justice folks who were really worried, who were concerned about how sprawl is, uh, you know, is pro pollution, is pro uh, carbon emissions. And that coalition of environmentalists, racial justice advocates and business people created the possibility of reforming zoning policy, right? And and I think that's, I, I want us to, I would, and we're seeing some of that in California, but I, I think there needs to be more of that innovation to kind of build those winning coalitions. Beautiful. Um, yeah. And so as we get into pseudo rap mode, well, hey, I love, so we, we kind of tried to get a debate there. It wasn't bad, you know, you know, we tried to get you guys to uh, yell at each other, but, um, and I love, I just love Jessica to reflect one word there, the, the bundle, just like bundling things is so good. Or like the coalition, like that kind of mindset, I think is really crucial. And if folks want to read, there's this great book on six faces of globalization by Anthea Roberts, which is a um, beautiful book on that framing. But for globalization, you can kind of apply that to any level of the stack. And so that's kind of a beautiful thing. I want to do one final thing here, which is to ask you both just to do a quick overrated underrated so i'm going to say a thing and you guys will say whether it's overrated or underrated and you kind of spend and just like that you say overrated and then kind of one sentence on which one of whether you think it's overrated or underrated um and so let's do kind of the yimby movement is it overrated or underrated jessica can't i just say it's properly rated no not allowed not allowed not allowed not allowed um i in in california it's probably overrated elsewhere it's probably underrated and i would say that uh yeah so i'm gonna i'll, I'll just leave it there beautiful omar. that omar what about you i'm gonna say it's underrated i mean i think housing is ground zero for just about any justice issue you uh care about and that getting uh, improving people's access to housing is just like you know, key to making a fairer, more just, more opportune America. So I think um, the YIMBY movement is, uh, has, is in, in California has been remarkably successful, but I don't think it's been, uh, I think it's underrated for, for the, the amount of possibility and opportunity and justice it may deliver. Got it. Um, and then uh, Jessica, what do you think about the role of race in America? Uh, is it overrated or underrated? People don't give it nearly an, enough uh, prominence. So I guess that's underrated. People, race underlies everything in American politics and it has for 150 years. Love it. Omar? Ditto. 
Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think chatting with folks who are outside the U.S., they're like, the U.S. is crazy because you guys are always thinking about race, but it makes sense because it's so important here. So um, great. And then the final question is, um, uh, oh, what about, I think both of you, what about the role of statistics in political science, Jessica, is it overrated or underrated? <laughs> uh, I have a nuanced answer to that. So I'll say that the role of um, causal inference, the causal inference movement in political science is overrated. Um, but the uh, the the use of statistics is generally sort of underrated, I guess. Beautiful. I would echo that and say, as somebody who teaches statistics and loves statistics and, you know, wants to kind of preach the gospel of statistics, I, I think it's actually a little bit overrated. And, 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 and I say that only in the context of being in a moment where I'm increasingly obsessed with like how people make sense of the world is through stories. And, um, and so if you can't, give people a kind of mental model that is a compelling story, you, you, you're not going to be able to like persuade people. And so statistics can undergird that in really important ways, but it's, it's ultimately statistics in service of um, what I think of almost as like data as rhetoric. Cool. I love both those answers. And um, so, and we're going to wrap here again. Thank you both. I think you have a, it was great to hear you guys kind of vibe out on different issues. And obviously you guys have just a ton of knowledge about how we got to where we are today and also some of the ways that we could go forward in terms of housing. Um, for folks that want to check it out, A, um, check out Jessica's book on segregation by design, um, especially if you want a great, it's just like a great, if you like like color of color of law and things like that, but want kind of like a data kind of like analysis of like a deeper analysis of like what's going on there. That's a great thing to read. Also, she's on Twitter at Trounstein, which is T-R-O-U-N-S-T-I-N-E. And then Omar is on Twitter at a Wasau, and I keep on pronouncing uh, o, your name. O, 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 o W. Oh, sorry. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. said A. Yeah. And that's O W A S O W. Um, uh, o W A S O W. Beautiful. Um, so check them out there. Any final things to say for our, our listeners, Jessica or Omar? Uh, no, thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation. I, w- I would add one quick thing, which is we talked a lot about California, and I think it's really important to appreciate that these issues are now national. And um, and that it's really what's in some ways in, in, a, in a kind of terrible way the the bad trends that we've seen in California over the last fifty years are in some ways now becoming America's problems. Um, and so I wouldn't want people to think of this as local. Um, but if you are, I highly recommend Jessica's book. Um, I teach it. Um, and also, if you're looking for another introduction that is more California based, Golden Gates is a book by Connor Doherty that I, I it's very readable um, and and I think uh, provides a good both history and kind of uh sort of you know human face to what some of these uh uh, how this plays out beautiful um well thank you again for coming and thank you listeners for listening goodbye everybody thanks so much for listening today if you like the show please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on youtube and if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing smart ambitious divergent people come on by and join our discord you can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.